to Soul Knox Podcast, and I'm your host, Carl Ikera, and I'd like to welcome you to, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I believe this is episode 8, yes, episode 8 of the podcast, um, and uh, this week, my friend Mike Hill from the band Tombs, and uh, also Scorpion Throne is uh, joining me to uh, for the second episode of um, Eldritch Tales. Last month, he and I covered, uh, kicked it off, and covered um, Dreams of the Witch House with from H.P. Lovecraft. So this week, we're covering one of my favorite authors, Robert E. Howard, of whom uh, at some point I'm going to definitely. Uh, Start up my Conan Robert E. Howard podcast. So, uh, this one though, I wanted to cover for sure for Eldritch Tales, and this one is The Black Stone, which I think is uh, one of my favorites for Robert E. Howard in general, and uh, probably my favorite of his uh, weird fiction um, Cthulhu mythos kind of tales. So, yeah, me and Mike will get into it a little bit more about uh, the tale and everything that goes into it, but, um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy the, um, what is I going to say? Yeah, so that's what we did this week, um, next week, uh, not 100% sure, uh, quite yet what is going to be up next week, so keep your eyes open. Um, here in, in a couple weeks, uh, I'll be appearing on Brandon Legion's Horror Wolf 666 podcast, so keep your eyes open for that as well. Uh, he and I covered uh, our top 10 uh, ghost movies, uh, haunted house movies, so uh, really great conversation, and I'm excited for everybody to hear that one as well. And uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening uh, to the uh, last episode, the Nas Alchemist episode. Uh, Nas is right now uh, conquering Europe with Aklis, with Fids and Versa, Chaos Invocation. And uh, yeah, it was a great response from that episode. Uh, a lot of people really liked, seemed to really love it and like it. and uh, Just a great response all around. It made me pretty happy. And, you know, there's a lot of people listening too. So uh, just uh, I want to say thank you for the kind words everybody about that episode and I'm glad that it was a success um, and uh, at some point in the future uh, once Nas is back from his uh, tour and, and that everything uh, I think we're going to do a, a part two maybe later on in the year so that's uh, that's the plan um, before we get into the episode about the Black Stone I'd like to give a shout out to all my brother podcasts, uh, the uh, my brothers of the podcast apocalypse. You know, uh, Mondays we got the aforementioned Werewolf Six 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 with Brandon Legion, uh, one of the best horror podcasts out there. He covers um, interviews with people up and coming, does uh, top tens and some other different things. And uh, just a great podcast, and one I recommend everyone checking out right now. Uh, Tuesdays, we got Into the Necrosphere of Jackie Smith, which I personally think is the best metal podcast out there for extreme metal. 
great interviews, uh, long form interviews with people, and Jackie uncovers a lot of really cool bands, and so uh, I think uh, it's definitely a great resource for everybody. And uh, at some point, I'll have Jackie on here as well. Um, Wednesdays, we got Mike Hill with Everything Went Black. Everything Went Black is a pretty wide-ranging podcast uh, from just interviews of bands and people and his friends to uh, different types of subjects like the Unholy Passion series they does with Ralph Schmidt of Ulta. And uh, they uh, cover a lot of really cool artists and stuff like doing an episode about like Gun Club and different things like that that I love. So yeah, uh, check that one out. And then uh, Thursdays, check out Necromaniacs with... Uh, Mike Scandato, Jeff Kashid, who joined Mike Hill uh, for my personal favorite uh, horror podcast out there for podcasts that are dealing with, say, like a, a movie, you know, kind of not the d- other type of podcast from like uh, Brandon's where he's more doing like uh, like interviews and top tens and stuff with necromaniacs they're doing like one movie they used to do two or three but you know they do one movie every uh every week uh new and old and um just great i love it you know they talk about stuff they're checking out and everything and uh i definitely recommend everyone checking it out uh then on um uh intermediate intermediate uh inter- intermittent not intermediate intermittent times depending uh we got Cheyenne from Trivax with Iblis Manifestations which is a great podcast particularly if you're dealing with like black metal and uh cool black metal artists like uh last week he posted uh or um this week I guess but he posted an interview he did with Chaos AD of Fids and Versa, which is fucking great. Great episode. I loved it. And uh, Cheyenne will be on uh, this podcast here soon. We're going to be recording that pretty soon, so you guys can uh, keep an eye out. You know, we're going to try to, you know, get all the people on here. All the brothers of the uh, podcasting apocalypse, as you say. <laughs> um... So yeah, before we go into the story itself, I'm going to start this off with uh, the newest single from uh, Tombs, uh, which they released a few months back, uh, Ex Oblivion. Um, and the single itself uh, is great. It's got an amazing cover, Killed by Death by Motorhead, G.G. Allen cover, uh, I definitely recommend checking out. I love the artwork for it as well. Like, uh, the fucking cover art is amazing. So, uh, Next Oblivion is an amazing song, and if it's, uh, any example of what is coming on the new, um, new Tombs album that I know that Mike's working on, it's gonna be a fucking great album. And, um, so yeah, that's where we're gonna s- start off before we get into the episode proper. And, uh, then I'm gonna close out the episode tonight, or today, I guess, uh, whenever you're listening to it. <laughs> The episode with uh, the fourth song from the Scorpion Throne EP, which Mike recently released, which is uh, an amazing EP, and I recommend going on uh, everythingwentblackmedia.bandcamp.com and uh, picking it up from there on Bandcamp. Uh, so, 
It's really definitely worth your money. Alright, well, hope you guys enjoy. Hail Satan.
They say foul beings of old times still lurk in dark forgotten corners of the world and gates still gape to lose on certain nights, shapes bent in hell. Justin Jeffrey. All right. This week we're covering uh, The Black Stone. And um, it starts off... starts off really diving into von junst and uh the nameless cults that's kind of like the whole start of the story that's what kicks everything off you know what i mean yeah it's uh in some ways it's it almost um it starts off almost like an indiana jones sort of uh story you know where there's yeah. this, this guy who's like this sort of unnamed narrator narrator who's uh pouring over some books he's like has a in my opinion my, my vibe is that he's kind of like a scholarly sort of person yeah definitely getting into esoteric books and writings and things like that yeah it it definitely seems that way i mean and the fact that he's got summer holiday stuff it does seem like he's maybe a a teacher or a scholar it's not said explicitly but you definitely get that um that vibe from him and and uh you know he's talking about von junst and the, uh, the nameless cults and going through the you know this is where the introduction is nameless cults are Unausprochen Colton, or however it's is in the German title that um I guess Derleth Derleth came up with was he was the one who came up with the the German title. Uh, you know, I wasn't aware of that actually. August Derleth came up with that. Yeah, I found that. Yeah, I found that out. So because um they all you know they're in their little letter letter club they were you know Lovecraft thought that there should be a German title because it's a book in German you know. And um, but uh, no, no one really liked his. I forget what his uh, his suggestion for it was. But and then um, then I guess Derleth came up with a Unas Blake and uh, Colton or whatever. And uh, so yeah, now is in the pantheon with the Necronomicon and the the Book of Ibon and everything. And but I think the the name was Colts is an interesting one because it's it's the the von Junst guy, I mean, I guess he's supposed to be what, in like the 1400s or, or early 1500s, talking about cults that are going on in his day. And somehow he's like even traveling to like Meso, like uh, to Mesoamerica, you know, to Mesoamerica, basically. Like, uh, so, which is, I think is interesting because apparently in another story, you find out that he was talking about some place in like the Yucatan as well I think it even mentions that in the story you know because because there's a link between those and the one that we we've come across later you know that's interesting if um you know in that in that era a guy a German guy traveling to uh you know Mesoamerica is like quite a significant journey to make you know what yeah. I mean? you can't just get on a plane and fly to LA and then drive down you know he has to like get on a boat you know, people would die on that voyage. Probably there might be pirates, you know, things like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's definitely a journey, you know? And, uh, so yeah. And so in the story in particular, the, uh, narrator gets caught up on the idea of the black stone, which is supposed to be in Hungary. And, uh, and that's, that's kind of what kicks everything off reading in this book, I guess von Junst, um, it's supposed to have been like torn apart by spectral hands or something like that. That was like in the story as well. So, 
Yeah. And it's uh, quite a, quite a vicious way to meet your end actually. Yeah. Some, I mean, can you imagine seeing some guy like just get ripped apart, like invisible, like, like you can't see what's ripping them apart, but there's getting ripped apart in front of you. It'd be harrowing. Yeah. It'd be kind of like a nightmare on Elm street. Like that when, um, that first kill in the first movie when uh, she's like Freddy's killing and her boyfriend's like watching, you know, just invisible, like just like claw marks all of a sudden opening on her chest and all this stuff, you know? <laughs> exactly. But yeah. So they find, he find he reads about this place called the black stone, which is in Hungary. And, uh, um, it, apparently there's not a whole lot of information because it's something relating to some ancient, like cult that maybe isn't in existence in the time of, of the writing, you know? And, uh, cause yeah, I do think that Von Eunst is 1500s, right? Let me look. I think so. Oh, yeah. It sounds... uh, nope. It was 1800. Sorry. Oh, oh okay. Up. Yeah. Dussel, right. He says nameless cults was 1839. So, okay. so he was like, yeah, like a romantic era actually not that makes more sense. That's what, you know, it makes more sense going to the Mesoamerican stuff. Yeah. Cause then like North America by then would have not been like uh, a wilderness, you know, it would have been, there would have been some civilization, you know, there would have been like, you know, the 1800s, basically the United States would exist. It wouldn't just be like a voyage into uh, unknown oblivion, you know, with, he would be in effect an explorer at that point if it was in the 1500s. Yeah, exactly. And it make it makes more sense because I think the events of the, the kind of some of the events that, that kind of get recounted later, I think are more in like the 1400s. So, yeah. Right. So um, basically, there's just like this hint of some type of uh, cult that used to operate in this place. And um, and our narrator is really fat, like just like very intrigued by this whole story. And um tries to dig, dig up more information. He finds some other like books like that and finds out the name of this town is called Strigoi Kavar, like, which is like, which, which village basically, you know? Yeah. Yep. And, uh, he, um, eventually kind of figures out that where, um, where it is, like, even though it's not really on a map or whatever. And I, I, I realize that it doesn't really quite explain how he figures out where Strigoi Kavar is, but he just does, you know, <laughs> which is also like a very, that's like a, a very typical setup for these types of stories. You know what I mean? Where there's like an unknown town. It's not on a map. There's this book. There's a artifact, which possibly predates recorded history. Uh, sort of a sketchy, murky past, you know, and all, all this stuff is like, is, um, is starting to add up, you know? Yeah. Well, and uh, a big part of the, the stories that he's reading is, is about the idea of uh, people having these crazy dreams, like at this black stone, like people are seeing, being driven insane or whatever, like by these things. And, and the, uh, the little piece of the poem at the beginning of the story is, is, um, written by Justin Jeffries, who's like a poet that, that Howard came up with. And it's called People of the Monolith. And and it seems like maybe this poem was inspired by him going there at night, you know, uh, on Midsummer Night at this Blackstone place. So, and our, our narrator knew this guy. And, uh, and apparently he died 
raving mad in an insane asylum. So there's yeah. some corroboration to the idea of people being driven insane by uh, by the monolith or the black stone. Yeah, definitely. And uh, our narrator will get even more um, corroboration when he goes to the town as well. Uh, one thing, though, on, on the way, he sees this um, castle that was like destroyed like at some point during these battles with the ottomans and that's that's kind of the historical backdrop of this story is uh the same wars that um vlad tepesh was involved with like the kind of hundreds of years of, of war between the turks and and the uh, and the ottoman empire and and the christians um in the area of hungary romania you know uh even eastern you know um Austria and this whole area, like, I mean, for hundreds of years, there was constant bloodshed and battle as as the Islamic Empire, like the Ottoman Empire, was trying to take over Europe. That was like the main um, kind of bastion of keeping them out of the rest of Western Europe, you know. And uh, so that's part of the the backdrop of this is that uh, essentially. Uh, at this this ruined castle there he finds out a story about a um a hungarian like prince or something like that who or count i think who who died there after receiving um some type of uh lacquered like case that that was taken from the corpse of um a uh, general scribe of the islamic uh, kind of army and that will come up later as well so just be, <laughs> that's why i'm mentioning it you know yeah that that's uh that's an inch i like when when howard because howard also has like a whole array of uh historical adventures that he wrote too so you can tell that he has this fascination with uh with ancient europe european history and a lot. He has a whole a whole bunch of these short stories that that actually take place within that period of time. You know, the Ottoman Empire and the battles between the Christians and the Muslims, and you know, Eastern Europe and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's that was like one of the hooks with the story the first time I read it. When I was like a I don't know teenager because I've always been really fascinated by that time and really fascinated, but you know, by Vlad Tepes and you know, all the stories of, of the battles there and like Wachia and Romania and Hungary and everything, you know, there's just something about that. I mean, as you know, this is the area that gave birth to, yeah, like Dracula and Elizabeth Bathory and all these types of things and all these great like mythologies of, of you know, haunted woods and, you know, bald spots in the middle of mountain, you know, on the mountain, you know, and uh, just all this great, like uh, where to like, bald spots where they're like you go at night and that's where the the uh the elves or whatever you're not elves but you know there's like uh wood folk out there you know what i mean like wood supernatural yeah, entities yeah, and, mm-hmm. and uh just so much like great haunted haunting haunted mythology in Syria. so as soon as i was like reading this first time i was like oh this is set in hungry i was like immediately kind of hooked you know yeah the other thing that um you know, even at a young age when I read this, because, you know, I discovered these stories around the same time, you know, shortly after I discovered Conan, you know, I'd started expanding out and reading the horror stories. And there's the idea of this unseen hand reaching for somebody across like 
thousands of miles and drawing them into this like dramatic, you know, sort of area where, where there's all this, like, you know, this guy's minding his own business, you know, studying these books and there's an unseen force that's drawing him towards this part of the world to discover all these things. And it's, uh, I, I always like trip out on these, the decision-making process to actually go on a journey like this, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, uh, it's definitely, there's something going on there. And, uh, I mean, I think it's also that thrill of, of kind of finding out about this stuff, but I, there is a hint in the story or a feeling of it that, that there is some type of maybe, uh, malign presence you know at the back of it like uh, as particularly as it progresses and you get towards the end you can kind of feel that maybe he there is some type of um yeah like spectral like conspiracy you know going on um and yeah i also like one thing about this story like uh i watched some video one time of there's like this haunted like forest in Romania where there are the like in the center of it there's this big clearing with like these like stones in the center and everything and there's just like like uh it's like constant like uh paranormal activity in this place like and people go missing and all kinds of crazy shit you know it's like I when I saw that that episode I immediately like started thinking of this but the story <laughs> What what was this episode? What what was the show? It was a show. It what was that show called? Um, Discovery Truth, I think. It was that oh, one right. where they would have. It was the episode, show was like mostly like cryptozoology, but they right. would do paranormal stuff as well. It was usually like two things, one episode, but they did one whole episode that was all about this like haunted forest in Romania. Yeah, I think it was oh, called cool. Discovery Truth Des- or Destination Truth or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, I think I think I think it might be on YouTube. I have to see, but yeah, but it kind of gave me that that feeling of like, yeah, there's haunted forests out there in in Eastern Europe, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, yeah, so the, our narrator gets to the village of Strigoykovar, um, talking to the innkeeper. He finds out that yes, the black stone is you know right over this valley or whatever and the innkeeper tells him about how one guy slept there at midsum- midsummer and then ended up i think like killing himself or something like that uh and then his nephew slept out by the black stone not on midsummer but just a rager night and has like nightmares to this day you know um so you know he's getting like some some further further type of evidence that that there is something kind of strange about this black stone and uh the next day he goes up there and he checks it out and yeah it's like the clearing and there's this like kind of spire like type of thing sticking up out of the ground you know like uh i think it's described as almost like it's not super big but it's definitely like you know it's a monolith you know yeah but it's definitely almost like kind of described as more of like a spire of a battlement or something, you know? Um, I made out of some type of black alien substance, like something out of uh, not like nothing that he could recognize. Like it's not like obsidian. It's not like something that, that he knows is like completely alien, you know? 
Of course it is. You know, it's like probably from some other realm or a different planet that it was like teleported here or something, you know, it, it's like, and there's also uh, symbols on there that are not part of anything that he's familiar with as well. Yeah, that's right. And uh, they've tried to like destroy a lot of those symbols off the bottom, but there's, but you can't, it's so tall that they can't, you know, they could never like get rid of all of them and no one can really destroy it because people who try to like actually like destroy the monument end up dying in bad ways and stuff like that. So um, in a way, it almost kind of reminds me of in the last year we did the dreams in a witch house where he pulls that like kind of like piece of like alien um, masonry from the from the other other dimension. You know what I mean? Yeah, actually, I was thinking the same thing, you know, because like I, I'd read this story and then like a couple of weeks ago, I read Dreams in the Witch House and um, it was like, huh, interesting. There's like another place with like some other bizarre architecture and this uh, Blackstone monolith could actually be from another dimension, some other place, you know, or maybe the same place. It's some alien architecture, alien material, unknown language, either ancient or completely non-human. You know, and, and uh, it's here in this remote Romanian, uh, Hungarian um, forest. Yeah, it's a remains of something like so ancient that it's from before the advent of humanity. You know, that's what it seems like. Um, and uh, there's some information that he learns about uh, the village as well that... Um, before the Turk Turks came through, there was an entirely different like kind of stock of people who lived in this place, like kind of like an inbred, like almost like uh, inhuman, like kind of like kind of race of, of people um, that would like raid on the people in the uh, like further down, like that, you know, like in the valley and everything because they're kind of high up in this like valley. And uh, and so they were kind of like warlike, like, you know, like um, kidnapping people as well for sacrifice for for their for their rights and stuff like that. And um, and when the Tur Turks came through, they killed it was like a genocide. They killed every single person in this village and raised it to the ground, except for like where the inn is. So all the people living there now are came in much later, like after all the, the wars were over, they, they migrated into this place, you know? So there's no relation to between the people living there now and the people that once were there who worshiped at the black stone, you know? Um, can you, can you imagine being in a group of people that decided to settle in this, like <laughs> this place that used to be inhabited by these like bizarre subhuman, you know, raiders, <laughs> <laughs> that, that you know kidnap young girls and babies and sacrifice them <laughs> yeah i know that's a great place to set up camp you know <laughs> yeah i thought about that too when i like when i read it every time i'm like man like uh who who moves to this kind of place you know like <laughs> <laughs> i guess if you don't have anywhere else to go but <laughs> seems kind of i don't know about that yeah, our narrator then goes to the Black Stone. Turns out it's midsummer, as it is. Like, it's midsummer night. So he's like, all right, I'm going to go sleep by the stone or whatever. Go by the stone and see what happens, you know. Or when he gets there, he does fall into, like, this kind of dream-like, trance-like state. And then um, he 
witnesses like uh basically one um it seems like maybe like a replaying out of time of this ritual like he slipped in some type of liminal state where he's he can see the events happening but he can't really hear you know like he can't hear what's going on which is an interesting kind of a effect effect i feel like that's being described and i i like this section because this is like a great section it's like when you read lovecraft like for example call cthulhu or something is talking about these nameless rites you know like that the uh say the swamp dwellers who are worship cthulhu are doing or something like that you know lovecraft is kind of skips over it a little bit you know he's kind of like oh yeah they're doing things that are just terrible they're evil you know and uh, <laughs> And just lets you kind of like decide what that is. But uh Howard's like, no, I'm gonna fucking show you yeah. what what kind of like fucked up shit they're doing. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> so you get this like graphic like description of these events, you know. Yeah, Howard Howard's good like that. You know, I mean his he's way more of an adventure writer, you know what I mean? Like from all the Conan and Call and Solomon Kane stories, uh, there's a lot of action. So his one of his strong points is writing action. And, uh, you know, Lovecraft wasn't necessarily a um, someone who was really focused on action. His was more about mood and atmosphere and concepts, you know, but good old Robert E. Howard gets right into the nitty gritty of all these <laughs> sacrifices and the bloodletting and all this other all these other lurid details. Yeah, I mean, it's literally like you got like the people like chanting something. You got this like um, old woman like standing by the stone uh with like a baby and there's a, a woman like a naked woman like strapped like chained to the stone and there's like a brazier like smoking like flames and you got then you got like a naked woman dancing like with a guy with like a wolf's head mask like like whipping her with like birch 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 like um you know twigs and like as she's like dancing and he's like calling out to whatever like whipping her she's like bleeding she goes and she's basically like kissing the stone and like you know all this stuff like and the old lady literally bashes the head of the child on the stone it's just so brutal just like twirls it and just whacks it head right into the fucking stone yeah, it, it's very graphic <laughs> definitely the story is not for the faint of heart for sure no <laughs> And yeah. then, yeah, and then you got like, um, then like uh, what sounds like basically the the revelers are tearing at each other and like some type of outburst of bestiality. And, you know, maybe the he doesn't say explicitly, but it's probably sexual and, and violent. And, and then the next thing you know, there's this toad being standing up on top. And I think a lot of people wonder if it's uh, should uh, was it? The yeah, that, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, like uh, you know, over the years, rereading the story and tying this all together, it was like, in my opinion, it's definitely Sathagua, or at least a minion of Sathagua, you know, or yeah, or, like, yeah. you know, because it's like, um, you know, people are, are referring to this as a mythos story, um, yeah, definitely know, a lot of connections. So, all these guys barred from each other, like, you know, there, there's there's mentions of of Cthulhu and all of, you know, Clark Ashton Smith and, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard's other stories, you know, everyone's, it's, it's an, it's a universe that, you know, predating the Marvel universe, you know, these guys right. are all having all these characters that are coming in and out. 
And uh, so my, in my opinion, well, they don't say it, but in my opinion, it's the Thagwa. So, right. Well, it does tie in with, um, like, uh, Clark Ashton Smith created Thesagua, and uh, it kind of is very reminiscent of his Thesagua stories, where the way it's described. So, you know, like it's kind of like a later authors kind of turn him into some something a little bit different. I feel like, particularly like, um, what was his name? Uh, uh, the one guy, Michael Shea. Like he he really develops some that that whole entity in a lot of ways, you know? Oh yeah. Michael Shea is definitely, actually you turned me on to Michael Shea. Um, yeah. A few, you know, a while back you, you recommended him and I actually wasn't even familiar with him at all. And uh, yeah, but he, you know, he was like much, much later. He was like in the eighties, I think. Right. Is that yeah, what he was most writing? Eighties, nineties, early two thousands. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, as far as like the old guys, I mean, yeah, I always thought it was Sasagio or at least like a earthly manifestation of him. You know, because of what one of the details later, it seems like it's like maybe Tasagua taking shape, like taking form and and the you know in our dimension or whatever. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And um, yep. And so he sees that stuff going on, and he goes back, passes back out. Somehow he doesn't lose his mind, uh, and he has this thought of remembering that ruined castle where the count got the case from like the guy who was basically he leading up the uh the genocide of these people in this in this in this valley you know what i mean uh the the muslim like islamic leader who was who is overseeing the cleansing of this area and uh and he thinks (laughs) well i wonder if um if if that that case should still be there i mean uh you know that's what he's thinking so he goes and he does like a real secret, like at in the middle of the night, goes out and like does this archaeology of like taking out all the stones and finding the corpse of the count and finds that case with a, a story inside, like a kind of, you know, writing inside a scroll. And uh, on the scroll, he finds out that the um, the when the Muslims came through this area, they found this like degenerate, you know, like inbred like subhuman race like there the and um they realized that that yes indeed they were worshiped this entity was real they killed it with like blessed blades or whatever drove it into like some cave or whatever you know that uh, that's why i think it's like an earthly manifestation of of you know because you can't really kill sagua but i think like it's like if he takes flesh in this dimension he probably could kill that you know what i mean Right, exactly. Uh, I don't think it kills the entity itself, but yeah. So you know, they 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 find that and they you know all this stuff is true. It's it's what you know what what he saw in that dream was all like verified by this information that he, and then it ends with a kind of like ominous uh, reflection that if this was true that Johann Gunst found and you know was writing about, what else <laughs> in his book could be true? You know. <laughs> Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, uh, you know, he, he's not driven insane. But I believe that after as the years progress, that this uh, anxiety that he has after, you know, that final statement about what else could be real would eventually drive him insane. Our name was a narrator. You know? yeah, I feel sense. like that. 
he's not out of the woods yet. Maybe at the moment of the story of the right, the writing of that story that he's agitated, but not quite, he still has his wits about him, but I feel like insanity is definitely in his future. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's true. I mean, if you, if you have that, that realization that all this fucked up shit that Von Jens was writing about nameless cults, like that maybe all of it's true, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, totally. You know? Yeah. And, uh, uh, and I, I kind of like that, that ending, like ending on that kind of note. The um, yeah, definitely. It's uh, what's interesting about this story. I mean, I know I, you know, I, you know, I didn't. I neither one of us were around back then to to read, you know, weird tales like as these stories came out. But um, you know, so I, I don't, I haven't read like the chronological order, like all these different authors stories or whatever. So I don't know who's came first necessarily, but uh, I feel like this story and uh, the setting of it really is an influence on a lot of other writers and a lot of other stories. It gave kind of like a blueprint for a lot of other things, movies, short stories, novels that I've read over the years or I've watched, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I think it's quite an influential story actually. Yeah, I'd agree. I think it really did set that blueprint. And, um, like the whole setup of it like uh find some information in some old book and then go to the place that it, that you that is there and then find out that this like you know malign like things that you were f- reading about is actually true you know confronting like the unthinkable basically you know well what comes to mind and maybe it's because i just watched this movie a few days ago um Rennie Resmini from Starkweather, who, you know, he chimes in a lot on Necromaniacs, the other podcast that I host. Yeah. Um, he recommended to me not a great movie, but an interesting movie called The Ruins. And it was based on a novel by, um, I can't remember the, art, the author's name, but um, it's not a good movie. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's um, you know, came out, I think maybe 2006 but it has like a very nineties kind of vibe to it. You know what I mean? And uh, within right. in that movie, there's like kind of a similar scenario where there's these uh, Europeans, they're in South America. Uh, one guy has like some sketchy map that he's copying out of a book and they want to go to the, and these, this ruin doesn't show up on any map that, you know, it's not part of the tour or anything like that. So they go out into the woods, they pay some guy to take them there. They, they find the place there's a group of, uh, you know, native people who are trying to keep them out of it. They, you know, decide that any way to go in. And uh, there's this uh, bizarre plant material, very Lovecraftian, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, and then just mayhem ensues and it doesn't have a good ending. It has a very bad ending, actually. <laughs> it's, it doesn't have a happy ending. So right. um, conceptually very good. That's why I'm, I'm interested in maybe reading the novel. But, you know, it just fell short. It just had a lot of pitfalls of movies from that time, you know, like the, the weird pop music soundtrack, like, you know, the, the sort of basic characters, you know, shirtless dudes that are like ripped <laughs> and like, you know, hot, like blonde female characters, you know, just, I don't know. If you if you'd have taken those people and changed them out with explorers or something like that and set it in the 30s, I think it would have been a great weird tale, you know? right. But it kind of fit the blueprint of this story in a lot of ways. Like there was this ancient ruin, and you know, I don't know, it's just really cool. Right. It sounds like a cool concept. I actually know 
know what movie you're talking. I never seen it, but I I've seen like the 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 poster, like the you know the cover yeah. for it. Yeah. So I I I but I never actually watched that one. But I I would watch it. I mean, just keep in mind that it's not very good, but it's definitely it kept my interest though the whole time. Right. Even it's though I the- acknowledge, you know. It's one of those movies that's like got an interesting. Like you kind of like it, even though it's it's like not. It's like the ideas behind it are enough to kind of like draw you in, even though exactly, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, you know, there's that weird plant sort of, you know, where the plant come from. They come from like some asteroid or you know from another dimension. Like where did this font, this flora come from? You know, it's like a Lovecraftian kind of vibe to it. Was it set like in like South America or somewhere? Or? Yeah, it was in South America. Okay, so it's kind of like an old ruin of like maybe like a Mayan or Aztec type of or Inca type of place. Exactly. Yeah, it was that kind of thing. Okay. Cool. Yeah. yeah, it was, like it was interesting for sure. The um, it's interesting too with with Howard's stuff. Uh, speaking of that, like the original town name is like Zulfultan or something like that. Right. And it is it's obviously modeled off of the like Aztec, like Mayan type of language. You know what I mean? Right. Like, yeah, exactly. And I feel like that that's something that's interesting is he's kind of um kind of I think like he's trying to point to some type of like that this ancient race at one time was probably like a great, you know, type of race of like uh maybe Volusian or something like that. Cause I think like what wasn't one of the old um, in his stories, isn't like the Volusians or the Atlanteans or something use those types of words as well. Like where it's, yeah. 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 Some of the, some of the way the spellings are in, in like the Volusian, like they, they to me seem like this kind of, you know, Aztec, you know, sort of vibe to, you know, the way that their, their words are constructed and the titles and the names of the places and all that stuff. Yeah, and so I think that's an interesting thing. Is if you know more about Howard's work, you can see like what's going on there. That that he's kind of saying that yeah, like in this place, these this remnants of the Volusian Empire or whatever like degenerated, and uh, they're also he he seems to pl- place them like in like Mesoamerica as well and and different areas. You know what I mean? Like you'll see that um, there's another story that he wrote. Um, remember the title okay it's a book here it's called um um was it hills of the dead i think let me see no that one's the solomon kane i'm trying to remember what the story is there's one that is set in like the southwest and there's like it's like people of the mound or something like that oh yeah okay i'm drawing a blank on the title but i think i remember sort of what you're talking about yeah i don't know why i can't can't remember the goddamn name i have the book right here and i'm like which one was it um or dweller in the dark valley maybe anyways then that one again he has like this kind of people with like uh there's like these mounds and uh he said it like kind of like in in texas basically somewhere in texas where there's these mounds that people thought were just like native american mounds but uh they dig into it and it turns out it's like something it 
connects to the whole children of the night type of thing, but it's, but it's here in our country. You know what I mean? Yeah. Also, one of the things like you were touching on about the Volusian Empire and like the high, you know, in the high, that, that era was way before the Hyborian Age right. of Conan. And the Hyborian Age is obviously way before our history, too. Uh, so some of the things that over the years that I've been reading these stories is the idea of continental drift and Pangea and all that and how maybe like middle America, like, you know, that part of the earth was closer and these migrations of people. Uh, and then as the continents drifted apart, they became arranged in what we could look of as the map of the world today. Right. You know, and a lot of that, those concepts and, you know, just even, even in our own history, the, like when you can see there's pyramids in South America and pyramids in Egypt and all that. And it's like that design, that basic architectural design, like how did that actually connect with people that are thousands of miles away, you know, right. either continental drift or they were in such an advanced form of technological uh, civilization that they made, maybe they had airships or something like that too, you know? Well, I mean, and it, there was, um, wasn't there a, an explorer guy who built like some type of ancient style boat and went from, you know, Africa to South America or something like that? Like uh, on this like reed boat, basically. He, he yeah. And, yeah, that's, that's ringing a bell, actually. I can't, yeah, that, that's going all the way back to like high school or something, like high school history class, I believe. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because, uh, you know, I really I think that there was a lot more and I think that there's a lot of stuff that we don't we don't realize about ancient history. And I think that there was a lot more communication across the entire globe at, at certain points, because here, the thing is, is, I'm definitely a believer in the idea that Robert Howard talked about of like the rise and fall of like these cycles of people, you know, evolving and de-evolving and, and these types of like culture culturally and civilizations and i think it's very easy to see that when you know that that's exactly what happens i think a lot of people today are very blinded by the myth of progress of just constant progress of just seeing it's like a myth of seeing everything oh we went to stone age and there's this age and in this age and but the reality is that there was there's always been a cycle of ebb and flow where i mean egyptian culture for example and lasted for i mean 5,000 years or something like that. You know what I mean? Or somewhere around there, like four, 4,000, 5,000 years. I mean, the, the pyramids are built in like so long ago. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, like I was, I was reading something where somebody was saying that Cleopatra is closer to us than the builders of the pyramids. That's tripped out man, <laughs> think about that. But yeah, that's, yeah. I mean, I, I'm a believer in that too, the cycles and, you know, and even like, we, we accept history, you know, that we read, but we don't really under have any real understanding. You know, that's, that's just like, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe there's like, that's an approximation of what it actually is, you know, or what, what it actually was like, you know, it's all passed down through books and word of mouth and, you know, tales and mythologies and things like that. But who knows in reality what that was like, like what life was like back then, you know, and, and what exact what existed before everything that all of those records were lost, you know. Yeah. I mean, our society, everything now is going into the, the cloud. I mean, we live in a world made out of plastic, and uh, 
that stuff's going to disappear. You know what I mean? If there was ever like a electromagnetic, electromagnetic impulse would wipe everything out. And then like in a thousand years, we no one would know we were even existed. You know, then another civilization would rise from the remains of whoever survives or whatever survives and a new epoch starts all, all over again, you know? And it's, yeah. That's the thing that people don't realize is how easy it is for so much information to go away. The only only way to have any type of ability for information to live on is in books and is in like physical like things. And even that can burn that can turn to dust, you know, or whatever. But that's like really, you know, you have to have this physical physical item, you know, like because like you said, like if you have electromagnetic pulse and all of a sudden, like all the information, the entire world is gone, you know, all this stuff yeah. people building in the internet. I mean, it's, it's not going to last. It's not forever. You know, it's only absolutely it's, not. It's yeah. completely yeah. dependent upon, you know, having a, a electric electricity grid, which is dependent upon everything else uh, operating in this. If, if this stuff breaks down, then it's eventually going to all go away, you know? Yeah, you know, and that's that's the whole thing of like digitizing everything and putting, you know, the library, all these libraries on online somewhere in a cloud, you know, and it's like I wouldn't be so I would it's yeah, it's great to have all that stuff accessible to people, but that that's no real archive, you know, that's not like a physical archive that you could actually that stuff's gonna disappear, you know. I mean, you think about it, you know, like the cuneiform. Uh, Sumerian texts like that was in stone, you know what I mean? Yeah. So that lasts and that's almost in a lot of ways superior to the cloud, even though we have all this technology, those Sumerian tablets are going to exist until they turn into dust basically. Yeah. Or like the Egyptian hieroglyphics, you know, you look at some of these hieroglyphics, they've been there for 7,000 years. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. You know, it's like but impossible to imagine, you know? And, and that's like the most intriguing thing about the Blackstone in the story is like, you know, it's, it's never really, it's, it's left to speculation as to what it actually is, what actual powers there are, you know, um, where There's, it came from. There is a, a hint in, in the story that it's maybe a tip of a bigger structure that's buried under the earth, you know? Right. Yeah. Like that, that maybe that there's actually just, because he said something about some type of gigantic, like unhuman, like tower, like castle or something almost, you know, and that's like the spire of it. Like he sees some type of vision. So there's like a hint that maybe there's like actually some, you know, supremely ancient building there that just got covered by earth over the, over, over millennia. You know what I mean? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's like, it's never fully presented though. It's like speculated, you know, and it's, um, yeah, the passage of time is always a very uh, heavy thing in, in Howard's, a lot of his writing. Like just even, you know, all of his different heroes that he has, you know, King Call, uh, Conan, they're all these, Brand McMorn, um, Solomon Kane, uh, Cormac McCart. You know, actually, I don't think, does there exist a uh, collection of his, his short stories? Uh, I don't think so. I don't, I don't think, think so. Ray put that out. That's, that's one of his uh, curiously absent from their their bibliography of his work. Yeah, they have Brand McMorn, which I have, and King Cole. I don't think I don't know if um so of the Cormac stories. I don't know if there's enough to put in in a separate book. 
I don't think that there's that many. If there, maybe they're in like one of the other collections or something. Cause you know, they did a few like kind of random collections. Oh yes. That's right. Yeah. And he was, might be in one of those. I don't know. Yeah, he was part of like a, the historical fiction stuff sort of, you know, he was part, he was in, he existed in the real, in the actual timeline that we know about, you know, it's yeah, part of our timeline. So, yeah. So did Bran McMoran, but he, I mean, he wrote enough stories of Bran, I think that they collected in that one volume, but yeah, I don't know. Cause I don't have the historical fiction volumes yet. Did you get those? I have one of them, but I don't have, I don't have a full collection of that stuff. I, I have some of the, like, like over over the years of the course of my life, a lot a lot of time, like when I was like when I was a kid, you know, there was this one bookstore, which I took for granted that it existed. And I talk about this bookstore all the time. It was literally called the Book and Record Store. Right. <laughs> that was the literally that was that was the name of the store. It's right? a, it tells you what tells what you what you're getting on the cover. You know, <laughs> very very descriptive about this type of what kind of place it was. Right. So. Whoever was the guy who, or person, or whatever, male, female, whatever, that was involved in purchasing and stocking that place really knew what was up. You know, the music side, they had like Motorhead, the Ramones, they had all the important bands from back then. Um, You know, Scorpions records, like all that UFO, like everything that I was into. Yeah. And um, in in the fantasy section, they had like, Robert Howard, Tolkien, H.P. Lovecraft, Clark Ashton Smith. Um, and within the Howard collection, they I like I have like books, this book, I'll send you a photograph of it. It's called Black Fulmia's Vengeance. And it's like a pirate, pirate book. Okay. Of like Robert E. Howard's pirate stories. <laughs> That's awesome. I've never seen that. Yeah, story. it's like it's a it's a pretty large format paperback, too. And it's like uh I'll send you a picture of it. And, and since then I've never even heard of these stories, but I, I have a, I have like a, I have, I have these things, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, I've never, they, Delray needs to put out the, the pirate collection. If they're, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, totally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then like it, you know, it was good for me to read a lot of that stuff too. Cause then it got me interested in history and it made me focus on school more because there was, you know, stories of the crusades and, you know, Interesting. I mean, obviously, European, you know, through the the viewport of Western civilization, he was telling these stories. But uh, yeah, it was just fascinating, the breadth of knowledge and interest that Robert E. Howard had, you know. Well, he prided himself on the historical fiction of trying to do as much research as possible to really bring it to life as as accurate as possible. That's part of why he was attracted to doing the um the Hyborian age in particular of Conan is that he could kind of um he didn't have to be so accurate like he did with like he felt like he felt like a sense of integrity or honor to make his, his historical fiction as realistic as possible. So you know he could kind of relax with the with that Conan stories, but then he could pretty much you could tell that he designed the or the Hyborian age came about to allow him to to hit every single I mean, there's a Conan story of pretty much every single type of story that that he wrote almost. You know, you got uh the one story that's like uh almost like a, a pirate adventure where Conan's like a pirate. You got like um I got a couple of those, but you know, or you got like ones that's set up like uh like um you know, cowboys and Indians kind of western story, like with Beyond the Black River or you know. Right. And but I think that's what makes those those stories come to life is that they are rooted in 
his like his like obsession with historical like information you know yeah the pirate stories with conan are, are the, that's like you know queen of the black coast you know the, the lit the elite yeah and there's, um, there's one other story where uh conan actually doesn't enter the story until a bit later in it but it's like the people you remember the one where it's like they have like this um these people are on the, the coast of zingara and uh it's like it's like a couple it's like a woman and a child and another guy and and these pirates like roll up and eventually conan like comes in and saves the day basically i can't remember the name of that story but it's literally like they're dressed up like pi- pirates you know <laughs> yeah it's uh you know it was definitely uh you put a lot of thought into creating a, a world so there's a lot of world building you know and, and his passion for historical fiction and history, ancient history. I mean, each one of these kingdoms, like Aquilonia is obviously the Roman Empire, you know, Vanaheim is like Sweden or something like that, you know, and all these like... Yeah, they're kind of like melded together. It's like Aquilonia is like Roman Empire combined with like maybe chivalry, like, uh, you know, like... uh, that kind of medieval knights and stuff like that. It's kind of interesting yeah. mixture, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Real, really cool stuff. But um, yeah, the horror stories though, often overlooked, uh, definitely worth reading, man, for anyone out there who's only, only knows Robert E. Howard as a creator of Conan. Like he has a whole rich universe of, of different characters and different types of stories. He's got, like boxing stories. He's got all kinds of things out there. Yeah, and was the horror fiction? I, you know, the the Delray horror stories of Robert E. Howard is like the the go to source. Like, um, I love I love this 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 book. Like the stories in it are like every story is great. Like some, and uh, yeah, they're, they're not as well known. Uh, but I mean, back in the day when I was younger, I had gotten a book um, called Wolf's Head. It was like a paperback of now it's anymore. Yeah, that's how I. It's like a white paperback, and that's that's how I actually was introduced to his his horror fiction, and uh, that's where I first read the Black Stone and and a lot of other stories. It's a great little paperback, but mine is like so old, <laughs> like and I read it so many times that kind of was like falling apart. Yeah, man, those those paperbacks are pretty precious, man. Like I I, I was telling you earlier that like I just you know finished collect my last two volumes of the um, Carla Wood Wagner uh, Kane paperbacks that I did not have in my collection. So I have like a complete set of the paperbacks now of the right. four novels. And uh, man, I, you know, I, even before that, you and I were talking about, well, how much money would you spend on a paperback? And I was like, well, I guess $30 is how much <laughs> I would spend on an ancient paperback. Yeah. You know, but I had to have the ones that were of the same pressing as, you know, uh, Death Angel's Shadow and Bloodstone. So Darkness Weaves and Dark Crusade, uh, Darkness Weaves and Dark Crusade. Uh, they're all part of the same. They have the Frank Frazetta covers and it just, it just, uh, I don't know, it's just really cool to have all that stuff. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, it would be so cool like we're talking about somebody finally released like a edition of the Carl Ed, uh, Wagner's like um, stories like and, and novels like you could can probably do like a, a set like a two volume set with both all four of those novels or something you know or even one really big like paperback yeah. of all four of them 
Yeah, the, the books themselves aren't very long. I mean, they're only like maybe 200 pages each. Right, yeah. So, so you, you can totally put together like a, like a big tome of like all four novels. And then a lot, and none of that stuff, none of his work is in print right now. It's all, you can get it as an ebook for the most part, pretty much everything. Except for some of the horror stories, like, um, you know, that hardcover that I bought, that was uh, uh, When Summer Ends. That, none of those stories are collected anywhere except for that one volume. They all appear in different anthologies and collections that, are, that include other authors. Yeah. And um, it's just, you know, I mean, that one cost me a little bit of money to get. I mean, and it's in excellent condition. It was, it's obviously it's a library book basically. Right. And, um, you know, so that, that one is like, none of those stories are collected in eBooks anywhere. Just That's the cane crazy. stuff right now. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's it just, uh, it's, it's really, it just kind of blows my mind, you know, and uh, that, uh, that is stuff's like so hard to find, but I yeah. mean, there, there was a time where, you know, a lot of authors were in that, that predicament. I mean, I remember, um, I remember when I first found out about Robert Chambers and the and um, the King in Yellow, like years and years ago, like twenty years ago or whatever. And you couldn't find that book anywhere, you know. Oh it yeah, it was impossible. Like I, tr- I, would, I tried to get it from the library, and like, and I couldn't even get it from the library. It was like, you know, really difficult. Uh, and then you know, flash forward to True Detective coming out. And then all of a sudden now there's like a million of ver- million versions of the King in Yellow uh, in all kinds of different formats. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, yeah. And also there's like volumes of, of Chambers, other fiction, too, that are out now. Different collections, you know, yeah. of, his, of his work, which is cool. And, and you got it. Hey, I, I, I'll take it. You know, I mean, that that first uh, season of True Detective was great. And I think it's cool that it brought attention to Robert Chambers and and. Unfortunately, Carl Edward Wagner fell to the wayside and he was part of that inspiration for that show as well. You know? Right. But it would have been great if he got his I'll, own stuff published again too. Yeah, definitely. I always wondered if um if Blair Witch Project was ever like influenced by Styx, because that story is like it seems like it. You know what I mean? It seems very much like it could have been inspired. Yeah, I think so. Um definitely. You know, I I remember, um, like when when I first started. I mean, I saw I saw Blair Witch in the in the movie theater, and it was like I didn't really like the movie itself. Yeah, but the the imagery of the of the the little stick things that they made reminded me of that story because you know I read all that stuff. Like I read Carly Wagner when I was like a kid. You know what I mean? So it's like right. <laughs> that stuff was very much like in my mind, and every time I would see like something similar to that these like weird folky stick creature statues or whatever you know these like little designs it always made me think of that story you know well i mean a story came out what the 70s so yes yeah. it's pretty anthologized i mean it's one of the few wagner stories i've actually read so yeah that one was in um that showed up in a couple places there's a a chapbook called whispers it's in there and then it's in another, it's in at least one or two other collections that I have that have other authors in. Right. I just like, yeah, I've read that one and I've read his, his King and Yellow story. Uh, that was in, yeah. I, 
The uh, River of Night Dreaming. Is that the story you're thinking of? Yeah, let me go grab that real quick. Yeah, that's one. River of Night Dreaming. Because I have this, uh, the Haster Cycle by Chaosium. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, River of Nights Jr., that's where the girl like falls into the river and she escapes from jail or something like that. Castilda, her name is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good story. Yeah, and, and there's a king in yellow crossover tie in tie in on that. Yeah, that, yeah. That's why it's in this uh this thing. I think it's kind of funny with, with the Haster stuff, like the way that I don't know, Durleth and stuff tried to develop it was kind of lame, you know. Like I don't know if yeah. you ever read the Durleth story. Um it's in this book it's uh uh the return of haster it's, it's real silly <laughs> I, I haven't really read a whole lot of august durlet stuff you know what i mean um it's, I really never, <laughs> yeah, it's like he's more just like a behind the scenes guy really with weird fiction you know i don't think he's i think he's a pretty bad writer you know yeah his writing is not I, i'm not i'm not i can't say that i'm a big fan of his writing actually yeah it's it's kind of funny, like there's a dual edge short of Durless where it's like he did a lot of good, but he also did a lot of harm as well, you know? Sure. <laughs> With like editing a lot of people's stuff and but I mean, yeah, I, I guess he did good with like doing like the good editions of, of Lovecraft and like you know, kind of continuing that on, but he did uh kind of I don't know, like he tried to kind of develop the mythology in his own way, which was kind of like try to say that that was the only way was way that he was putting it and you know it was kind of like uh it's like it's not it wasn't even the point of like lovecraft creating the mythos wasn't supposed to codify it into this this like this is what it is like type of thing you know well well the same thing kind of happened with um with l sprig de camp uh you know with his um you know, his, his editing of Robert E. Howard's Conan stories too. I feel like, like, I think I was telling you um, at one point, the, that run of what, with the Frazetta covers that, that DeCamp was involved in editing a lot of those stories and, yeah. or, you know, he was behind the scenes on that and he, he ended up uh, modifying some of them and, and the, the versions that are in the newer collections are actually the ones that are similar. I mean, as close to the ones as appeared in Weird Tales. So yeah. Elspring de Camp was almost like August or left, but to Robert E. Howard, you know. Yeah, Elspring de Camp and, and Lynn Carter, you know, they were they were the tag team on uh yeah, they're they're definitely those same type of type of people where, you know, they did a lot of good for for weird fiction and, and fantasy fiction and stuff, but they also they also like kind of were doing bad things at the same time, you know, it's kind of it's kind of like an ambivalent like kind of legacy, you know what I mean? Well, Actually, didn't didn't Lynn Carter wasn't he like a porno writer or something like that? I I think that he wrote like pornography. Oh really? He wrote pornography. Too. I mean, he wrote he wrote a million like fucking like fantasy novels and stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> let, let, let me uh, let me just back that up before I slander. <laughs> the um, <laughs> but yeah, the. I don't know. I didn't. I never heard if if he was. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. 
the big problem with with all three of them was that they like to do pastiches of people and sometimes they weren't very good pastiches but i mean i will give elsprog to camp that i think that his pastiches were much better than much superior to Durlef's, you know yeah, yeah definitely like when Elsprog to camp or lynn carter like finished like a, a a fragment of a of a howard story you know like it was usually at least a better quality than when Durlef did that to the Lovecraft stories. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, I can, I would agree with that. Yeah, I might, I might have made that up about Lynn Carter, or I might have heard that somewhere <laughs> about him as a porno writer. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, he probably wrote whatever he could. Or I would say maybe not porn, but like erotic fiction or something. You know, I think maybe porn is like too strong of a term <laughs> for what he wrote. You know. Well, I, you know, there's a lot of writers who make a living, like, you know, particularly back in the day by writing, uh, you know, uh, under a pseudonym writing for like Hustler and stuff, you know. Actually, have you ever um, heard of John Norman, the Gore uh, series? No, uh, Gore. Oh, yeah. Um, G-O-R. Yeah. G-O-R. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I have, I have one of those. Yeah, I have a couple of those. And I, you know, I read them as, you know, a young, a young lad. And uh, just in the last like year or so, I remember, uh, I don't know if it was like part of someone getting upset about it or not, because, you know, people get upset about a lot of things these days. <laughs> but they were talking about how, uh, you know, that that's like an SNM, like SNM people were really into the Gore novels. All oh, right. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. And I was like, huh, interesting. And, I, and then I'm like, yeah, I picked a couple of them up and all, all of the all the covers that I have, they have like the Boris, the ones I have have like Boris Vallejo covers. Right. Yeah. It's like a lot of times, like there's like these women are like, like tied up and being beaten and stuff like that. <laughs> and then I, I thumbed through a couple of the stories and I, you know, I've been like years, decades probably since I read these books and yeah, there's, there's like a heavy duty bondage vibe in like all the stories. So I guess there's something to that. Yeah. Well, you, that was actually a pretty common thing in a lot of those pulp stories back then. I mean, even James Bond, like last winter, I kind of got on a James Bond kick and was re- reading like the novels and stuff. And there's a heavy like S and M like type of like type of type of vibe in a lot of those James Bond novels. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah, I think that was there's like in a lot of stories like that. I mean, and have you you know you've seen those old illustrations for weird tales where it's like a woman tied up with like whipping her and you know stuff like that <laughs> oh yeah yeah definitely um you know it's it's pretty cool like at um at when i went to necronomicon a couple of weeks ago you know I, I i spent so much money on stuff when i was there i bought all these books i mean i posted about a lot of that stuff and did they um did they have a, like a lot of um a boost and stuff there and and yeah, they had, they had, in addition to all of the panels, which were awesome, and there were, like, way too many to, I mean, I missed a lot of ones that I wanted to go to, because they're happening either on the one of the days that I wasn't there, um, or at a, um, the same time as something I went to. Right. So, they had one, they had a, a panel on pessimistic philosophy, too, which is awesome. Oh, well, did you go to that one? Oh, yeah, that was, that was, I had that one highlighted on my schedule, just, just check that out. Were they, were um, they talking about like uh, Emil Saran and and all the kind of pessimist philosophers like uh, that Lugati talks about? Yeah, yeah, you know, like Schopenhauer and like all that sort of stuff. And you know, they, it was it was really interesting. But but the uh, yeah, they had a, a whole vending area that was really well curated. You know, like Hippocampus Press was there, 
Um, you know, they had a, a bunch, all the publishers that, you know, publish weird fiction, you know, put out the, in, you know, they put out all this cool stuff, artists, you know, and I bought some artwork and there was a guy who was selling uh, framed reproductions of weird tales covers. So oh, I, wow. I picked one of those up and it's hanging up right here, right here in my little home office that I'm sitting in. That's awesome. Yeah, it, it was great, man. I'm going to, they, every two years they have it. It's not a yearly thing. So, right. Well, what were some other panels that you saw? Oh, uh, they had one uh, that reviewed the work of um, of Clive Barker, which I wouldn't necessarily call him a weird fiction writer, but you know, he's a yeah, an awesome writer. So I went to that one. Yeah, I mean, it's more uh, horror was, fiction, I guess. Yeah, more yeah, more just straight up horror fiction. But you know, he's a, I love Clive Barker. So they, yeah, me too. Yeah, so you know, it was like a breakdown of all of his work. They discussed themes, you know, his impact on popular culture, like that sort of thing. Right. Um, there was a uh, discussion about um, music, you know, and that one was kind of vague. I thought about like what I'm like, huh? What were they talk about with music? Right. You know, and weird fiction. But uh, you know, they that one. I, we ended up talking about more like more about films actually, and uh, that movie in the Earth. You know, like the was a Cliff Manzel. Like his work was discussed quite a bit. Right. Um, there was a panel on uh, weird fiction and comic books, and you know Alan Moore and like all that kind of stuff. Right. It was definitely like a, a long. It was. It was a really. I I need to go for more days because I only, I really was only there for like Friday night and Saturday. Right. And there there was stuff that went on at night. There was like. Yeah, just like a cool time. I I mean, when I'm definitely the next time they have this. I'm gonna I'm gonna go for the entire festival definitely. Then they had they had bands and stuff playing too, right? Well, there was a show that was connected to that, and it happened you know down the street in this venue, of like the Columbus Theater that I'd never been to, you know. And I, I played in Providence several times, you know, a handful of times over the years, and um. Just randomly, I ran into my friend uh, Jeremy, who plays. He's like one of the guitarists in Black Anvil, and he also is in a like a straight up like old school like heavy metal band called Sanhedrin. Okay, yeah. And they they were playing the show that was actually going on. It was them. They were supporting uh, Sirith Ungol. Oh, so sick! Uh, yeah, that, that old school band. And, yeah, I'll, um, say, I'll have Sirith Ungol. Yeah, so I just randomly ran into Jeremy. And he's uh, he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, oh, I'm at the you know festival. <laughs> and like, right. I didn't even realize that he was they were playing, and he put me on the list. Now, the funny thing about being on the guest list, it was in a theater, and I figured I'd just get like you know some kind of they'd stamp my hand and I go and walk around and just be there. I actually sat in a VIP booth, so it looked like uh, you know I was like Abe Lincoln, you know, like in some <laughs> fucking. You know, booth overlooking the stage, like by myself. Oh wow! You know? and like and people are like looking up at me, like who's that <laughs> asshole, like sitting up there alone? You know, and it was me. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. They just put you up in this booth. But they they also had, and I didn't I didn't see any of these things. Uh, there was a whole film festival that was part of it that was in a different location. Um, uh, there was. Uh, an art gallery that had a bunch of artwork hanging up, which I didn't get a chance to see because that was in another location. And 
you know, everything, all the panels and stuff and the vending was in two hotels that were right across the street from one another. And the other, uh, like the film festival and the art gallery were somewhere else in Providence, you know, but not that far away, but I couldn't time it to go out there and come back. And you know what I mean? So, right. But if I'd been there for longer, you know, I, I might have, I might have just taken a whole day and watched all the movies, you know, or something like that. Yeah, um, kind of like split up uh, what you're doing each day, kind of. Yeah, yeah. So definitely, it's um, it's it's a uh, the next time I go, I'm going for the entire thing. It's like Thursday through Sunday. I'm gonna I'm gonna do the whole thing next time. Right. That's like uh, four days. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a nice yeah. little getaway. You know. Yeah, and I mean it's pretty cool you know you're out there for lovecraft's birthday and and uh get to kind of revel in weird fiction and and lovecraft and it's kind of cool like to be able to i'm sure to be go to something like that that's more specifically like a, a con for for weird fiction and and supernatural type of fiction like this stuff like because it's like oh cool like you can go and hang out with you know there's like other people around you that's like Oh, yeah. the same thing like which there's not very you know it's not like you run into people into like weird fiction every day you know what i mean very rare very <laughs> very rare and everyone was pretty friendly and easy to talk to like i talked to um some of the guys who do uh the lovecraft easy podcast yeah uh, they had like a table there and i like talked to those dudes and you know it was nice nice to meet them and um you know it was just nice to, you know people you, that you can just walk up and talk to people about because you all you all basically have that in common that you're into like weird fiction. Yeah. You know, and you know, un- unlike other other horror cons, um, you know, I, I go to like, you know, chiller and you know, oh, I I go to, you know, generally Salem Horror Fest, like that kind of stuff. You know, there there was no uh Friday the 13th or you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, you know, none of that stuff was there, obviously, because they did a really good job of curating the vendors and they made sure that the vendors were just focused on this time, this type of thing, you know? Yeah. So you're not going to go there and buy like a Chucky statue or something like that. You're not going to find any of those things. Well, yeah. It's, it, I mean, yeah, it's like, if you want something like that, you should go to a regular horror con, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So yeah, like, uh, like I think it's cool that they were kind of like really like focusing it focusing everything in on on those types of stuff like um yeah there, i just found out there was like a, a horror con here up in Greeley that uh that i didn't even know about till, was, till after it happened so i was like kind of annoyed by that because uh, i wanted to go i was like the next i, I told myself it was like next horror con that's in in the area I want, me and my friend are going to try to go and we totally missed out on this one up in Greeley that just happened yeah you know it's um yeah, I was supposed to be on tour this fall, but that got postponed until the spring. So I'm going to be around for a lot of the Halloween stuff now, which is going to be good. That's like the one upside of that. Right. Um, you know, so that's, you know, there's going to be a chiller, chiller theater convention that takes place out here in Piscataway, New Jersey. I'll, you know, I'll go to that, you know. Yeah. Last year, that's where I think I caught COVID, actually. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, hopefully this year I don't, get, I don't get sick when I go out there. So we'll see. You found some cool. They have uh, the pictures you posted. The stuff you got last year was like really sick. Like, oh yeah, it's like uh, it seems like that 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 con has like a lot of really sick like um, sticks like magazines and old movie, oh, yeah, movies. Oh yeah, and all kinds of shit. Yep that that's a chiller. Chiller is like um, 
that's like a, a, a monolithic, uh, you know, old school, like that, that's, that's like a, you know, institution out here. They've been, that's one of the oldest cons in this area. So it's always like really cool to go there and they have, you know, great, you know, people there and a lot of good stuff. Right. That's definitely one of the things that I'm like intrigued by going, because I've never actually been to a, a horror con. I'm like, it'd be cool to go to one and see if they got anybody selling like Fangoria's and old magazines and, you know, all that kind of shit. Well, chiller, chiller, come out for chiller, man. It's like, um, that one's, uh, they, if you want to buy like old school, like mags like that, that's the place to go, man. Like, right. You know, world famous monsters, like all that stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I have a, I have some old Fangoria's. There is a store, uh, here called black and red, which, which is like a record store. And, and you know, uh, they do, they sell records and books and like role playing game stuff and all kinds of all kinds of stuff. It's a pretty cool store, and uh, they have they have like box old boxes, big boxes full of like old Fangoria's that I dug through and you know bought all the ones that looked interesting and stuff. You know, <laughs> yeah, the old old uh, old Fangos are good. Towards the end, that you know, towards the end of that, they kind of fell off. I felt like yeah, I and had like the, yeah, the reboot's okay. The reboot's pretty cool. Yeah, I never checked out the reboot. I had a I had a subscription to Fangoria like towards the end of the original run, and I was kind of disappointed by, by you know like compared to the old ones, you know. But I, I think Rue Morg kind of took over, really is what it comes down to. Yeah, Rue Morg is great. I still have a, a subscription to them. I, I actually subscribe to the new Fangoria too. I mean, you know, I think that only comes out like four times a year now. It's like a hundred pages, of, and it's not so much focused on the news you know, in current movies, like it's more like, um, you know, content that you can read anytime and be interested in it. That's what I like okay. about it. That's cool. Yeah. yeah. It's like deeper articles, like that sort of thing. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like an evergreen one where they kind of just do like deeper articles in the movies or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously there's like, you know, a couple of things that hook you that are current, but you know, it's, you know, you're, I mean, it's a magazine about horror movies. So, of course, they're going to have like whatever happened that year as being in the current issues. But, you know, you can enjoy them. And it's like deep, really pretty in-depth interviews and articles, things like that. There's some fiction in there, at least in the early issues. There was some fiction, you know, like short stories, things like that. Cool. Isn't is it? Uh, it's kind of expensive, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's like, you know, one of the things that I just you know, treat myself on, you know, like, yeah, yeah it's a little pricey, but you get a hundred page of book basically. So yeah. And that's, that's actually pretty good. I mean, um, I, I love like those, those kind of old magazines and, and I like finding and metal, like, uh, kind of there's some like metal magazines still that exist or like zines, like the Bardo methodology is one that I really like. I collected all those. Like that's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, but, uh, you know, like, I think that there used to be like a lot, like more of these kind of magazines, but obviously today, like, you know, they're not, people aren't making as many as they used to, you know? <laughs> One of the, uh, the coolest, like old school, like death metal mags was a SOD sounds of death. You ever checked that one out? <clears throat> no, but I've heard, I've heard, I've heard of it, but I never, never looked at that one. Yeah. That, that's a great one, man. I used to search that out like every time like I, I never had a subscription but there was um there's a record store in oklahoma city 
And I remember going on a tour and I would buy like four copies of four issues whenever we stopped through there. And just, that's how I got them. Like we would, I mean, hell one, one year I played in Oklahoma city three times. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> yeah. It's a random city, but like, so, you know, it was almost part of like, Oh yeah. Every few months I'm going to be in Oklahoma city. So I'm going to pick up a couple more issues of SOD. <laughs> and then they would also sell it at vintage vinyl in New Jersey. And, you know, I would, it, believe it or not, like that, that type of magazine it, during the time I lived in Brooklyn, it was kind of hard to find that mag in New York. That's crazy. But I would find it like in Jersey or like somewhere out in the Midwest somewhere. Free, free boy. That's kind of crazy to think that, that you couldn't find something like that in Brooklyn, but you could find it in like Oklahoma city. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, dude. That, that's the thing I love, man. I love about, that's what I love about being, in, involved in music this way where you, you get to know places like that these like random spots that exist that you would never know about unless you were there for some reason you know right yeah it's kind of the funny thing like um uh up in uh, my mom lived in cheyenne for a while when i was a kid and so i spent a lot of time in cheyenne like in my like, teenage years basically like and uh, there was a store called Ernie De- Ernie November's up there in, in in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And the the funniest part about it was that I would find like better metal CDs and stuff there than I would even sometimes in Denver. It's so like fucking random. I just go in there and find all this like cool metal stuff, and you know like uh, people were like used even like there it was like because there's gonna see some like crazy metal guys up here in in, in Cheyenne. You know what I mean? <laughs> Yeah, no, totally, man. You know, it's it's funny how there's there's um my friend Steve, uh in he runs a record label called In It Records. And now now he lives in Min- in Minneapolis, but he used to live in Mankato, which is like a you know, college town. But back in the day, like traveling through Mankato, that was like some of the best shows that my my old band ever played. And also some of the coolest like record store finds were in like a town like Mankato. They had like every every record I was looking for when I went through that town. Right. It's funny, right? It's, it is really funny. Yeah. That, it's funny how that kind of stuff works. Like, well, sometimes too, I think it's partly because, uh, you know, if you have a couple of people in the town that are into cool stuff, but that, that they sell, it's probably just going to sit there. So you, so we are more likely to to find it or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know, in general, it's like in, in these small towns like that. Uh, I mean, you know, I, you know, I'm I'm a fucking old man, so like I've been, you know, it's like I've been through these parts of the country and seen all the different cycles, you know, of stuff. Where um, it's it's almost like the different eras of these smaller towns, like places like Plattsburgh, New York, or Mankato, or whatever. It's like there's an era of time where there was like a few kids who knew what was going on. And then for three or four years, it was awesome. Great shows. Like they, you know, there'd be cool bands coming through. Uh, they, you know, distros or whatever. And then those guys like grew up, you know, went to college or graduated college and got a job or one guy got his girlfriend pregnant or, you know, <laughs> something like some lifetime lifestyle thing would happen and it changes. And then the whole scene would die because, just the, the people, no one was there to pick up torch and move on with it, you know? Yeah, it seems like with a lot of stuff, you need to have, like, the kind of, you need to, a lot of times it seems like there has to be this kind of ringleader type people, you know? Yeah. It's, it's kind of like, 
I mean, even tying back to, to our story, like with when you had like that kind of group of people around Lovecraft, it was like, you know, when Lovecraft had died and Howard died and stuff, like a lot of them weren't really communicating with each other as much as they, you know, it was like Lovecraft was tying together this whole like little group of people, you know? Yeah. I, I just thought that was interesting because um, they, they paint a picture of H.P. Lovecraft as being this kind of like, you know, reclusive guy, like sort of, uh, you know, socially awkward and, you know, but apparently, yeah, he was reclusive and probably was socially awkward in like a person to person sense, but he was actually quite, he was like the, the linchpin of all this stuff. Like he was the guy who brought everyone together in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. It's pretty, it's an interesting thing. And I mean, he did travel and visit a lot of people, you know, particularly like the later part of his life after his marriage. I mean, he traveled to go visit uh, almost everybody, you know, that he could. And um, so, yeah, you, you get the feeling of that maybe, he wasn't just like this kind of, you know, he was a recluse in a way, but he actually wasn't in a lot of ways because he, I get the sensation that he would actually pretty, in a lot of ways, a pretty social person. Like he he wanted to have like this kind of group of people. Like he was always trying to create that. I mean, when he was in New York, they had these meetings, you know, uh, I can't remember that society, like what the group was called, but it was like him and uh, Belknap Long and a bunch of other people. And they would get together every week. Uh, and have coffee and talk about like literature and philosophy and and all art and all kinds of stuff, you know. Yeah, it's a lot different than the way they try to paint him as like this almost like incel kind of guy, you know. Which I don't, I don't believe. I don't believe he was like that at all. Actually, no, I don't. I the, the evidence of doesn't kind of proves otherwise. Like you know, he does. He doesn't seem like he was really that kind of person. Maybe I think if he was at all, it was more in his youth, like when his mom was still alive. Because that right. was when he was kind of like being, you could tell he was kind of being restricted, like almost like, I feel like maybe his mom like kept him from doing things. Sure. So he was just trapped at home. Like that was when he got into like the, the newspapers and stuff like, you know, like the amateur newspaper. And, and, uh, I, and that was like the time when he was like more like right wing and stuff in his politics and all those kinds of stuff, you know? And then it was almost like the longer, once his mother died and he kind of started having more freedom and particularly after his marriage, uh, it seemed like, you know, his, his, his thoughts chain or changing and his opinions and he was becoming more open to the world and all that kind of stuff, you know? Well, there, there's that documentary that, uh, I actually, I saw it, the, this doc at the, um, Salem horror convention, horror fest. I forgot the title of the documentary about each Lovecraft. I think they, it's, they on, talk, um, it's on Amazon, isn't it? Yeah, actually, I, I own a copy of it, too. Um, I forgot the title, though, but it's uh, it, S.T. Joshi talks about that, where, you know, he tried to just not not apologizing for him. Oh, yeah. Lovecraft, Fear of the Unknown. That's the name, the name of the, uh, the documentary. It's got right. Stuart Gordon. It's got Guillermo del Toro. Neil, Neil Gaiman is in it. And um really really good you know it's um of course they don't shy away from you know some of his xenophobia and, and right-wing conservative ideologies but they also say that later in life he, he came around and became more worldly and had a better understanding of things you know which 
you know, and of course, everyone, no one wants to hear that. They just want to hear that he's like this, you know, xenophobe, basically, you know. Well, a lot of people don't seem to realize that when he was in New York, one of his best friends, well, all of his best friends were actually had the opposite, like uh, a lot of the opposing beliefs to what he had when he was younger. Like Belknap Long was a communist or um, he knew this one guy. I can't remember his name, but he was like one of the leading um, thinkers for like desegregation and all this kinds of stuff. You yeah. Know? And, uh, but, but you know, getting out of Providence though is it going moving to a, a cosmopolitan city like New York is what it really changed him though. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I think, but it, you have to think that uh, I don't think a lot of people realize how the, the type of racism that exists in like particularly like more upper crust like New England, where it's very much like kind of like looking down at the at you know. You know, you'll hear these kind of older because um, he was he did come from an upper crust family where that kind of wasp type of thing where it's like, sure. you know, uh, Anglophilia, like uh, don't look down at the Irish and the Italians and all this kinds of stuff. And it's just kind of weird, weird. Uh, it's kind of and uh, I feel like he probably was surrounded by that and you know, almost like parroting that, you know what I mean? And when he was confronted with reality with it, he did eventually change his opinion. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, people have to understand this, this is like a hundred years ago that we're basically talking about, you know, and the world has changed a lot in a hundred years, you know, and, and, um, you know, it's funny, even, even uh, more recently that new England, you know, sort of um, bias against Irish and Italians, is front and center in the little girl down the lane, that movie. Oh, really? That's, we cover we cover that on Necromaniacs. And there's like there's these characters, these Italian characters in there that the townspeople are sort of like they're othering them, you know what I mean? Like the police chief is an Italian guy, and like the um your son or his nephew or whatever, and and the main character is Jewish. And then there's like Martin Sheen's character, he's like this creepy, like wasp pedophile, basically. Right. And his family is like othering the Jews and the Italians. And that and that's only from like the 70s. You know, that's not even that long ago. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that stuff's like very front and center, but even even back, even even as recent as like 30 or 40 years ago. Well, I'm sure that kind of that kind of those kinds of ideas are still existing today, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's a whole other subject with like the state of, uh, you know, things in this country right now. But yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. But, you know, so it's, 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 in, it's just like it goes to show that, you know, those type of things. I think that when people are raised in that and they learn to kind of parrot those things, uh, they eventually at a certain point when they're confronted with, the reality of situation, you know, sometimes they react in anger or something like that. I could tell like Lovecraft did at certain times, but then he did eventually, he wasn't a dumb person. Like he did eventually have the self awareness to start like changing his viewpoints, you know, when you're yeah. and, uh, and p other people had respect for him. And you know what I mean? Like they, even people had very different viewpoints. They had respect for each other. Like, and I think that that's something that, uh, that was pretty interesting. Like, learning that kind of information about you know some of the people that he was associated with in, in new york you know like it's like uh I've, so the you know like 
I just think, you know, I think that it's hard for people. They just want to like fucking, you know, say a bunch of shit and they do the same thing with like Howard and, you know, yeah. like, I'm just yeah. kind of like, I was like, I was like, I, I like these guys. Like, and I guess like maybe on some level, I just like, there's certain, if you come across certain things in these stories, that's like kind of like, you know, old fashioned. I just kind of go, that's how it was. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, Mark Twain, you know, I mean, it goes, it's like, if you're, you're, you're reading an author from a different era, you know, yeah. and it's, uh, it's important to like, understand that too. You know, it's important to like, look at it and be like, Oh wow. That's the way people saw things back then, you know? And yeah. it's a guy from like a hundred years ago, basically, you know? And yeah. You can, you know, take it. People are complicated, you know, and you can take it as it is and you can apply your own ideology to it and, you know, make your own decisions. Yeah. You know, Howard is like real interesting guy. Like I think, and I always related to him with his, like, uh, like a lot of his ideas with, uh, history and his obsession with history, because I've always been obsessed with history and geography and stuff since I was a little kid. I just like, mm-hmm. As like my favorite thing in the world, you know, is, is learning about his, history and stuff like that, you know? And yeah, that's great. I think that I always liked that about Howard and he, but, and he was definitely a kind of very enigmatic person. I feel like there's a lot of aspects to him that I don't think anybody really understands. You know what I mean? And I do find it because like when he, I find it really interesting how in his stories, there's like this vitality, like this, like, intense vitality and energy and like never give up type of type of feeling but then you know i feel like maybe in some way that's what he aspired to but then in the end i mean i think that his depression and stuff like kind of took 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 hold for you know what i mean like he didn't yeah he was only 30 years old when he killed himself you know yeah it's, Crazy. It's a, i think you know young so young man. it's a real tragedy i think because i mean how I mean, how much more amazing literature would we have gotten from Howard? You know, like that was a real, uh, I just think that was a real, real tragedy that that happened, you know? Yeah. I mean, the guy was basically a kid, you know, (laughs) 30 years old. It's like way too young, you know, to to kill himself or even just to pass away at such a young age, you know, and there was such a vitality to him, you know, and it's like, a lot, a lot of it's, it's might be a cliche, but people often say that um, like King Cole was more like what Robert E. Howard actually was this kind of brooding, like gloomy sort of guy. And, yeah, I could see that. And Conan was what he, like you were saying, what he would aspire to be this kind of lusty, like life loving, you know, never say die sort of character. Yeah, I think that that probably is true because. Uh, yeah, there's like a real gloom that goes through a lot of Howard's writings and you see it in Cole and you see it in uh, Solomon Kane in particular, you know, and uh, I definitely think that that's a big part of his of his writing and his poetry and stuff. Oh, man, there's a story that I it's uh, oh, man, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to have to like. It, he wrote it towards the end of his life which has like a real meditation on death and like sort of, ah, man, I'll have to like send it to you. The title it's escaping me right now. It's uh, but it came out like it's a short story and it came out towards the end of his life. And I, I, it's in a collection that I have. Is it like a, 
historical one or is it a it's uh, uh do you edit you edit these at all because I, I i can probably find out what it is real quick yeah i can probably uh oh yeah, edit it if i remember <laughs> yeah actually hold on a second yeah so the um yeah, the story that I'm the story that I'm thinking about is called Necht Semerket. And it's um it's in a collection called Swords Against Darkness. Okay. Yeah, and it's um it's just like this it, it it's um this character he's facing like this uh insurmountable uh, ordeal. Uh, he's mortally wounded, like this sort of thing, and um, it's uh, it's it takes place in like South America, and it's like a uh, sort of conquistador historical fiction story. Okay. Yeah, really, really interesting. You know, uh, but yeah, that was written towards the end of his life, and probably when he was the depression of losing his mother and all this stuff was creeping into his consciousness, and I think that the story was definitely something that was could have been created in an atmosphere like that. Right. Yeah. One thing that I love about Howard in particular is the way that he can like, um, it's like adventure fiction, but there's this heavy philosophical bent to a lot of his work where his hero, he has his heroes kind of like, you know, they'll have, they'll experience these things like, uh, and they'll have these thoughts about like, eternity and and like all this you know yeah like all these real heavy philosophical like kind of thoughts like sparked by something that they see or something that they experience like there's one um in in solomon kane's story about like the the skull it's like something about the skulls and do you know have you read that story um i'm trying to remember something skulls in the sky or something like that or moon moon skull on the moon or something but it has this, this like at the end, after all this shit's happened, he's killed all these people. He has this like real heavy, like philosophical, like very almost pessimistic, like meditation on on life and reality that about how meaningless it is and everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I remember the story. I haven't read the Solomon Kane stories in a while, but yeah, I think I remember that one. The uh, he just uh, there's a lot of that. I mean, I do think that in a certain extent, Howard's. Uh, philosophy was very pessimistic and it was almost like a kind of like Nietzschean nihilism where it's like this idea of accepting the meaninglessness of real of existence and just like doing the heroic path of like, accepting it and saying yes to life even if it's meaningless you know that's, I think that's I think, accurate I think that's running through a lot of his work you know is it's it's like he, I definitely feel like he saw that life was in, in essence, he felt like life was in essence, like kind of had a meaninglessness, so, except for what meaning you gave to it. Like in Queen of the Black Coast, there's that whole monologue that Conan does about if life is me, you know, whatever, you know, he'll, you can let the philosophers like go on about the meaning or meaning of life. He says, if, if life is meaningless, then only meaning that we have is what we have in this moment. And thus I will like take it and like drink it to the brim and like, you know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah, no, it's, 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 you know, it's really, really deep stuff, man. You know, I mean, even, even Crom, like the God that the Sumerians, uh, you know, worship, 
he basically doesn't answer anyone's prayers and he just kind of is aloof and you know yeah he doesn't <laughs> you're like you can't you can't you pray to him but he won't answer any of your prayers basically yeah, so yeah. it's like not having the god at all yeah he, they just he just creates you and uh you have to essentially just persevere with whatever that um whatever strength or whatever that he he gave he imbued you with at your creation but he will never listen to you you know <laughs> yeah all of that it's it's a very like interesting i mean the whole idea of that was very like uh gloomy i mean like samaria and everything and i feel like that's that's present through everything and i feel like probably going back to what you said earlier i would imagine that the ultimate fate of the hero of the black stone is indeed probably like eventual insanity because uh, you know howard's stuff is <laughs> there is that element of uh eventual you know uh existence destroying like type of elements you know what i mean sure like if it's going to be a he ends with it not being that way but you know you never know or I guess you could you could the hero could event could become like some type of like globe trotting uh you know occult investigator maybe even <laughs> oh yeah that'd be kind of cool sure the uh I I think that would be an interesting sequel to the Blackstone would be somebody going back to that that location and excavating under and finding like a bunch of caves and I'm surprised they ne he never re I'm so I'm I'm surprised that Howard never returned to that site for that reason. You know, it's like there's so there's like so much potential right there for another story to find out what's actually below if you uncover that, you remove the earth around the blackstone, what what sort of structure would be under there, you know. Yeah, well in in, in the story he talks about they talk about with uh when they killed the the frog demon, it was like in some cave somewhere. So it's like, and they blocked the cave off. So it's like, where did that cave lead to? Did it lead further into the uh, the depths of the earth where, you know, there's other yeah. like beings like still working underneath there. Like uh, one, uh, one thing that I did want to touch upon with the sto story that uh, is important is to really mention Arthur Machen as well. Because I feel like Arthur Machen was probably the number one influence on uh howard as far as his horror fiction goes and with like the uh the kind of like little people that are these like like in howard's he turns them into like these kind of unhuman lizard beings basically and uh and as but it's very similar to the idea of of mock and where it's like these beings that are from so old that they've degenerated into kind of an unhuman state, you know, and, and, uh, and in particular, the, the ritual in the story almost reminds me of, did you ever read the shining pyramid? The mocking story? Yeah. 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 I had that in a collection that I read a while back. Yeah. Right. Like at the end, they, they see the, the little people like the, these, uh, they're like, uh, ritual where they're like surrounding this this girl and they like devour her or whatever you know what i mean well yeah specifically this story is is very rife with uh arthur mocking isms you know i mean that that's like the whole like pagan um you know old religion like old customs like that sort of stuff is very very prevalent in, in that in his work yeah i 
and one thing I've always felt is I felt like this story is a very black metal story. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. No doubt. The whole vibe of it reminds me of so much, uh, like a lot of the kind of, particularly like a lot of the Eastern European black metal bands, like, uh, like Velez or, uh, you know, uh, Negra Bungit or all these kinds of bands like that have that real like from like Romania and Hungary and stuff, you know, but just like real evil, a- ancient evil type of energy uh, out in the forest type of type of vibes. I'm surprised, no one's, I'm surprised no one's made this into a movie. Well, I feel like it's funny you mentioned that because I feel like this, even though they haven't made this specific story into movies, I feel like this is the sort of raw materials for a lot of other movies I've seen. You know, like, for example, like that that movie, The Ruins. Um, you know, sections of this feel like they inspired like a lot of other segments of other movies that have to do with visiting a ruin or some kind of uh, hallucination of what happened in this area or ghosts and that sort of thing. Right. You know, haunted, haunted woods, haunted monoliths, like that sort of thing. I just think it would be cool. Uh, or even like a, if you're doing like a anthology type of type of show, you know, half an hour, hour, like type of be perfect, you know, that'd be great. If there was a weird tales anthology, like, you know, Amazon show or something like that, that just, you know, like Guillermo del Toro, you know, was, was like the curator of it or something like that. Like someone who knows what's up, you know, well, like there is that, a bunch of shorts. There's that show coming out that he's doing on Netflix that they are doing. Like, uh, I think there's three Lovecraft stories in that. Oh, wait, wait, wait what, what is this? Did del Toro's involved in it? Yeah, he's the he is he, basically exactly what you said. He's like the curator type of. Oh, uh, yeah, he's like the the guy behind producing and everything. Um, oh wow! I have to look up, look this up. I'm somehow I missed that. Oh really? You missed that? Yeah, it's coming out. Uh, uh, Brandon and I talked about it for a minute in the last week, but it's a it's a anthology show that's gonna be on Netflix. It's coming out in October. I'm and, all about uh, it. Man. Uh, Panos Cosmatos is doing an episode. Oh man, you know, I was he's another guy that I was thinking about that would be perfect for doing a weird fiction story as, as yeah. a film. Yeah. And uh they're doing a Dreams in a Witch House adaptation. Oh man, perfect. Excellent. And, uh, Excellent. I forget what the other stories are that they're doing, but I think there's three or four Lovecraft stories in the mix. So I hope this show's cool. Like it sound I mean, if you read the the um yeah, if you look it up, it's like look up Gamma del Toro, like show 2022 or whatever i can't remember the name of it but if you look at the list of of directors and people involved with it it's pretty impressive like it's a pretty impressive uh lineup of of talent you know i mean you know weird friction's hard to do in film so yeah hopefully they do a good job you know i hope so i mean i think with gamo del toro and people like panos cosmatos i think uh, i think you're at least you're it's geared towards you know you're kind of slanted towards success as opposed to failure i think <laughs> No, totally. I have high hopes for it now. Yeah, yeah I definitely do. Yeah, I mean, I, I highly doubt it's going to... You remember that old movie, the Necronomicon movie from the 90s? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was uh, that one was a little campy, I thought, for sure. Yeah, yeah so. I remember being pretty... I haven't seen it. I saw it when I was a kid. I don't remember it too well, but I remember being pretty campy. He had... Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Herbert West. Uh, Jeffrey um, Combs. Jeffrey Combs. Yeah, he yeah. was uh, playing Lovecraft and everything. 
I don't yeah, think I mean, yeah. I would, you know, he was like the go-to Lovecraft guy for back then, you know, he's in Reanimator, you know, like uh, From Beyond, you know, and um, that the Dagan film, they they couldn't get him. So the guy that they got to play the, the lead in Dagon was like the, the low rent Jeffrey Coombs, like that guy. <laughs> I remember yeah, watching totally it. I'm like, wait, that's not really Jeffrey Coombs. It's the guy who looks like him a whole lot, you know? Yeah, I was kind of thrown off by that the first time I saw the movie too. I was like, "Who is like is that's not is that Jeffrey comes? No, it's not. Who's this? <laughs> it's like some guy who looks a hell of a lot like him." <laughs> they used him for the Dreams of Witch House uh, Masters of Horror as well. The same guy. Yeah, yeah it's kind of weird, but uh, I mean, I I guess the Necronomicon one is like completely like you know a wall. Like you can't find it anywhere, you know. I remember seeing it when I was a kid, but <laughs> it's funny how some things disappear like that. Like you just can't find it anywhere, you know. Like there are certain things out there that just they're just gone, you know, the ether, you know. Yeah, it's like they get caught up in you know, like maybe some type of legal thing or something like that. They fall through the cracks and then just gone. But it seems to happen. Uh, <laughs> Like I was trying to find the uh, H.O.F. Craft uh, Historical Society movies, the Call of Cthulhu and uh, uh, Whisper in the Darkness, and right. I can't find them anywhere. I don't know if they can yeah. order it from them. I didn't. That's one thing I didn't check. But I mean, I was trying to find it like on the internet somewhere, and I was like, "Where are these movies?" You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess you could probably write to them. You know probably the that's probably the best option with them but i was just surprised that you can't pick them up anywhere you know or they're not streaming anywhere either so i wanted to yeah. watch i haven't i saw it called cthulhu back a long time ago but uh, i was like wanting to revisit those movies and i was like yeah you can't stream them or anything so well thanks for having me on again carl this is fun yeah, dude. I mean, definitely do more of these. I'm looking forward to being, you know, doing more of these stories and whatever you got, you know, coming down the line, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, dude, I appreciate you being on. Uh, it's a lot of fun getting to talk about uh, weird fiction with you and different stories. And, you know, we'll figure out what what, ne- what we're going to do next year and all that. And... Well, quite a bit, man. So uh, I'm sure we'll come up with something good. Yeah, I think uh, I'm thinking maybe mocking as like, as like maybe like the next step, but we'll see, you know, that's kind of my, th- maybe like great God pan or something maybe, but, sure. uh, but, uh, or, or, or Ligotti maybe. Oh man. Option. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Now so. let's do like great God pan. That's like kind of like the go-to, you know, and we can pick like a, a, a Ligotti story. Like I, that's, he's like one of my favorites. So yeah. Me too. Really cool. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, in the lineup, yeah, we'll try to hit uh, Great God Pan next, and then Ogadi in a, in a few months. Like, uh, uh, figure out one of the stories uh, that to cover for that. I like to read Ogadi in the winter for some reason, so we'll we'll hit him in like in a in a month or two. You know, definitely. Well, All right, man. Good. Thanks a lot. Thanks, man. I hope you have a good night. You too, man. Take care. Bye. Take care. Bye.